This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, It is time once again for Evidence for Faith. This is the weekly radio program where we give you the evidence to know for certain that Christianity is true, where we explain the benefits of Christianity for personal happiness and, and uh, human flourishing. My name is Keith Kendricks, and with me is author and apologist Kirk Hastings. Hi, Keith. Kirk, welcome back. Thank you. And, Kirk, you were recently in the news. Why don't you tell us about that? Yes. Uh, had a little article done on me this past week. Okay. Uh, it was just a, a little article about my book publications mm-hmm. and the books I've published and some of the things I've done and just a little overview of who I am. Yeah, that was nice. Yeah, it was yeah. Good, to, good to see. It was in our local Atlantic City Press. So, very good. They mentioned your books. They mentioned the radio program. So yes, they did. So it was nice to see I, I made sure you got a good plug in there. Yeah, yeah, that was good. <laughs> so, if you're just joining us, you can check us out on evidenceforfaith.com. Evidence, the number four, faith.com. We have all of our previous shows, podcasts there. And it's getting pretty popular these days. I think the most popular show has been downloaded almost 4,000 times now. Wow. So, yeah. So, that's... Uh, so that's a good thing. We are sponsored in part by Grace Community Church of Waterford Works, New Jersey. And you can listen to us here on WIBG from Ocean City. Okay, let's see. We have a lot. This is going to be a stack of stuff that somebody else has coined that phrase. SOS. Yeah, stack of stuff. <laughs> we have a stack of stuff today. A lot of different subjects, but all within the purview of the contents of our radio program, Evidences for Christianity. So we're going to be looking at archaeological evidences. We'll be looking at philosophical arguments and things like that. We better talk fast. We only have an hour. Okay. All right. Well, there's a lot to go through. A lot of new stuff out there. All right. I've got a quote. This comes from Apologetics 315 website, which is a great website. You should check that out, too. And it's a quote from a cosmologist by the name of Alexander Vilenkin. Now, this is fairly new because he developed a formula, a series of calculations that gave a result that had to do with the beginning of the universe. He and several other cosmologists worked on this, and it was proof, mathematical proof, that the universe must have had a beginning even if the multiple universe theory is true, Hmm. okay? So you know how we've gotten to that point where we've been able to prove that the universe had a beginning, so then atheists or others will just say, okay, well, then we'll imagine that there is multiple universes out there. There are thousands of universes or millions or an infinite number even of universes popping into existence, and we're just one of those. Mm-hmm. Well, these calculations prove that even if that were true, that would still need a beginning. So you simply can't avoid the fact that 
all that we know, all the physical universe that we know must have a beginning and therefore needs some kind of cause, some explanation for it. So here's the quote. He says, quote, it is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men and a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. So that's from Alexander Vilenkin, cosmologist. Mm. So, so well, we've also had quotes on past programs that even Einstein was forced toward the end of his life to admit that all the evidence indicated that the universe had a definite beginning. Yes. Yes, that's right, which he did not like. Right. And he many, wasn't particularly happy to find that out, but in light of the proof that he uncovered, he finally reluctantly had to admit it. Right. And and so all of these evasive maneuvers, there. remember the old evasive maneuver was the expanding and contracting universe. Right. That this could have, that the universe could be expanding from a, a Big Bang, a singular point, and mm-hmm. then contracting back down again only to explode and expand again. And that was right. proved not only physically to be impossible, but also philosophically and mathematically to be impossible. So now... Uh, Vilenkin and others have added this mathematical proof even to the multi-universes theory. So you still ultimately get back to a beginning, so there is no infinite universe. There's no such thing as an infinite universe. And that means that evolution didn't have an infinite amount of time to work either. Correct, yeah. There's no such thing as an infinite past. Right. So there's only a finite past. So some at some point you had a beginning, and then the whole Kalam argument fits in where you that then implies a creator, mm-hmm. a, an initiator, a beginner. If there's a beginning, something had to begin it. Right. <laughs> All right, Kirk. Now, I've also, I came across a really interesting video clip, and it's called, Is God Good? Are we going to show that on the radio? I, yeah, we are going to show this <laughs> video clip. So everybody look carefully yeah, at, look their, at your radio. At your radios. <laughs> And you can get this on the internet. Uh, YouTube has got it. It's called Is God Good? And the graphics are really high quality, very carefully, very cleverly done. And all these cartoon characters are kind of falling around and things. And you can actually hear the sound effects that go along with the clip on the sound file that we're going to play for you. This is like all those people that keep telling me I have a great face for radio. Yeah, that's true. I agree with them, too. (laughs) You look good to me. What can I say? So, Josh, if you'll... Uh, That's one yay. Hit the, hit the sound button. Here we go. Is God good? If he is, why is there suffering and evil? Let's assume for the moment that God is all-powerful. This means that God can do anything that is logically possible. So he can create galaxies and subatomic particles and rainforests and you. But God cannot do what is logically impossible. He cannot make a square circle or a one-ended stick. So can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? No. So what if when God created human beings, he wanted them to be free? Freedom's a good thing. But if humans are to be free, they cannot be forced to obey God. Because freedom without choice is like a square circle. 
It's a logical contradiction. No choice, no freedom. God didn't want robots. He wanted real people. The first humans endowed with the awesome power of free choice abused their freedom. The tragic consequences of their bad choice and our bad choices ripple across the world. God is responsible for the fact of freedom, but humans are responsible for their acts of freedom. But let's remember, we don't suffer alone. God will put an end to suffering and evil. And God became a man to suffer with us. God is good, and he wants real people like you to know him. But the free choice is yours. All right. What'd you think? Wow, that was really neat. Isn't that good? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's pretty good. Very well done. So you have to watch it on YouTube so you can get the full visual effects of it, too. What should we search on YouTube? It's under? just called Is God Good? And I believe the author's name is Zangmeister. Zangmeister. I don't think that's a real name. Mr. Zangmeister. Doesn't sound like one. Yes. Pretty sure you never know. That could be. Could be. Also, I, I wanted to mention also that for our regular listeners, next week we're going to be having the debate with the two atheists from irreligiosophy.com. So they are— Oh, boy. Yeah, that's going to be fun. That's going to be fun. Uh, they invited us on their program, and we're inviting them on our program, and we're going to do a little head-to-head and see see if we make any progress. So this is you and Mike are going to be debating that? That's correct. Yeah. Okay, I'll have to tune into that. Exactly. Yeah, we may need you here just for moral support. Keep the fire extinguisher handy for the fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm hoping that it do- it creates uh, more light than smoke. Well, so, let's hope. Yeah. So so that is uh, next week. All right, let's see. The stack of stuff. Back to the stack of stuff. This was a great couple of quotes here from thinkchristianly.org. I've talked about that website in the past, and they send out some very interesting stuff on a daily basis. So if you uh, subscribe to their stuff, they'll send it to you. So this is about the miracle of the origin of life, and it's just more evidence about the fact that naturalist scientists simply don't have any kind of explanation for the origin of life. So it's a it's a uh, glaring flaw in the program of naturalism and uh, evolution that there's an incomprehensible lack of understanding of for the first life. So this is what this says. Nicholas Wade, science writer for the New York Times, summarizes the current state of affairs regarding the origins of life research. So just so you know that we're not just claiming this. This is from a science writer from the New York Times. Mm-hmm. He says, quote, Everything about the origin of life on Earth is a mystery, and it seems the more that is known, the more acute the puzzles get. The chemistry of the first life is a nightmare to explain. No one has yet devised a plausible explanation to show how the earliest chemicals of life, thought to be RNA or ribonucleic acid, a close relative of DNA, might have constructed themselves from the inorganic chemicals likely to have been around on the early Earth. The spontaneous assembly of small RNA molecules on the primitive Earth would have been a near miracle to experts in the subject 
helpfully declared last year. So there's a there's a hmm. a statement on the state of affairs in origins of life research. It is just nowhere as it has been at least the past 2 years since we've had this radio show and we interviewed a, a PhD professor of cell biology and he told us exactly the same thing. And it's interesting too. I think we mentioned on a past program that even Darwin's book The Origin of Species doesn't talk about the origin of species. It assumes that there were early species that evolved into other forms, but he right. never actually explains where the first species came from. Right. So it's his book is really mistitled in that way. Right, right. Yes, it, yes it's it the is. evolution of species, but not the origin of species. He doesn't deal with that. Right. And sometimes atheists will, or evolutionists, they don't have to be atheists, but evolutionists will say that, well, this is an argument from ignorance. You know, you're saying that because we don't know how life evolved or started out, then we put in kind of God into the God of the gaps type of an approach. Well, actually, this is really because of what we do know about DNA and proteins and amino acids and even the early Earth's atmosphere, that we know that life could not have spontaneously emerged. And that's why mm -hmm. there is this paucity, this lack of any kind of an explanation. Right. Because it's, it's not that we don't know, it's because we do know so much that we know that it couldn't possibly have happened. They, We've also discussed on past programs that the whole scientific idea of spontaneous generation being impossible right. argues against you know the evolutionary point of view so there you have a fact of science that disagrees with what evolutionists say right and another a further point is that there is no self-organizing theorem there's no such principle or power or law of self-organization right so that Leave your house empty for a month and see how organized it gets. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> then they, they have this quote out of the um, <clears throat> movie Expelled, and I guess, I guess if I'd have thought a little more carefully, I could have pulled a sound bite from that. But here's the dialogue. It's Ben Stein's movie, his documentary, about this topic, and he's interviewing Richard Dawkins on The Origin of Life, and Richard Dawkins says... We know the sort of event that must have happened for the origin of life. Then Ben Stein says, and what was that? Dawkins says, it was the origin of the first self-replicating molecule. Ben Stein says, right, and how did that happen? Dawkins says, I've told you, we don't know. Stein says, so you have no idea how it started? Dawkins says, no, nor has anyone. Hmm. So... So that's that item from the stack of stuff. No evidence whatsoever, no even theory as to how uh, life could have started. So based on that statement, he can't really dogmatically say that Darwinian evolution is true either because he's saying the whole basis for that we have we don't yeah. know how it all started. Right. I guess the, the way to put it would be, even if Darwinian evolution turned out to be true, you, it still doesn't start. It's still a no-go. It's like a car that doesn't have a driver in it. It doesn't go anywhere. Right. Okay, so you have a car. So what? Mm -hmm. It doesn't drive anywhere. 
And if you can use that as an argument by saying, well, there is no God, then you can turn the same argument around and say, well, there's no evolution either, because you don't know how either one started. Right. You don't have any proof. Right. Very true. So if we're wrong, they're wrong too. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're right. Exactly right. Yep. All right, so let's see, a couple more things. This is from the Christian Research Institute, which is a terrific organization, been around for decades. I get their monthly magazine every month. It's got yeah, great it good? stuff in it, yeah. And yeah. they've just expanded it recently. It's a full-color, nice magazine now, and it's really an interesting read every month. Yeah, yeah, it's very good, very good. There's an article that they sent about... Was Christianity influenced by ancient pagan mystery religions? Have you heard this before? Somewhat. Yeah. I've, yeah. A, a lot of the atheists out there have written that they think that Christianity came about because it was stolen from the pagan mystery religions, the mm-hmm. the religions that were around at the time of Jesus. Right. So that's that's the argument. What they say is that uh, the first prevailing myth widely circulated in this regard is that the similarities between Christianity and the mystery religions are striking. Okay? Mm -hmm. So it's a myth that there's a lot of striking similarities, but that's one of the things that uh, these authors will say is that, wow, there's these really close similarities between Christianity and the mystery religions. Well, that's simply not true. Once you start to look at them, once you look at what the mystery religions are, then you see that they there aren't really striking resemblances. There are sort sort of similarities in the sense that that relate to the kinds of things that people concern themselves with, okay? So people all eat, all right? So there are meals discussed in the mystery religions. So then what the atheists will say is that, aha, you have a a communal meal. That's where Christianity gets its communal meal. It's bread and wine. Now, why couldn't it have happened the other way around? Uh, Well, actually, that's one of the arguments is that it did happen (laughs) the other way around because many of these mystery religions, in fact, didn't finish uh, growing and evolving until well after Christianity had spread across the known world. Right. Here's a, a little paragraph from what they, they write. The god Osiris was supposedly murdered by his brother and buried in the Nile. The goddess Isis recovers the cadaver only to lose it once again to her brother-in-law, who cuts the body into 14 pieces and scatters them around the world. After finding the parts, Isis, quote, baptizes each piece in the Nile River— Okay, meaning that she just simply puts them there. Right. But the critics would say, ah, there's baptism. See, anytime you've got water involved, then that's baptism. So every time we go for a swim, we're baptizing ourselves. Exactly right. (laughs) That's right. And Osiris is resurrected. The alleged similarities, as well as the terminology used to communicate them, are greatly exaggerated. Parallels between the resurrection of Osiris and the resurrection of Christ are an obvious stretch. And sadly, for the mysteries, this is as good as it gets. So this one about Osiris, and by the way, he doesn't really resurrect. He becomes the lord of the underworld. Okay. So so he's kind of 
alive while he's dead uh, right. because there's an afterlife. So, kind of like Pluto or Hades in the Greek and Roman mythology. Exactly right. Exactly right. right. So anybody going there, anybody going to Hades, you wouldn't say that they resurrected, would you? No. No. But according to the critics, this is an example of resurrection, and the Christians must have stolen their idea of resurrection from this mystery religion. It goes on, most mysteries flourished long after the closing of the canon of Scripture, mm -hmm. and when they saw that Christianity was stealing a lot of their converts away, they decided that one way to battle Christianity was to copy it. Sure. So so then you do get real instances of mentions of, oh yeah, our God also rose from the dead. Mm -hmm. uh, our God also is a trinity. Our God also did this or that. Mm -hmm. You know, that's where you get the copying. And then atheists will come along and say, oh, look at Christianity. It just copied these mystery religions. So in reality, the opposite. All right. So that is from Christian Research Institute. Then we also have from National Geographic, and this comes by way of Dr. Mike Larrakis, who sent it along, even though he couldn't be here today. It's all about the search for King David. And, you know, it's, an, it's interesting because when you read National Geographic, a lot of times they'll talk about ancient civilizations and, let's say, the Hittites. Okay, so what... What do you think you'll find written about the Hittites? They'll say, okay, the Hittites lived at such and such a time, and they built such and such a city, and they left behind such and such a writings, and on and on like that, right? A very straightforward, they just explain, here's what the anthropologists have discovered about the Hittites. Mm -hmm. Now, generally, they won't mention that, okay, so there's some competing anthropologist who disagrees with the first anthropologist who's digging at some city— They'll just say, they'll just tell the story the way the first anthropologist explained it, right? Right. Well, when you get to biblical stories, there's a, a very different way that National Geographic writes their story. I can already see which way this is going. Yeah, what do you think? <laughs> They're going to write it from a negative point of view and point out all the possible problems and criticisms of it rather than the proof. Exactly. They won't just describe, here's the evidence, we found this city... We found this pottery, which dates it at this time, and now, and that, you know, we found this inscription with the name of David on it, and this right. shows that, you know, et cetera. No, you have to have— They'll have quote all the critics of what who they say, found. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, so the critics will say, well, we don't think that that's necessarily right. I mean, it could be that the pottery was somehow put there by somebody else, and it's not really from that time— you know, but they're not the anthropologists who are doing the dig. Right. They're not the archaeologists. This critic doing could the be Joe Schmo from Hoboken, New Jersey, or whatever that's saying this, but they'll put quote him in there like he's an expert on this subject. Well, and they might be an expert, but they're not the guys handling the evidence. Right. They're kind of. They may not have even seen this evidence Correct. firsthand. Correct. But they're criticizing it. That's right. But they did at least they did go over the evidence. So I thought it was worthwhile for those critics who might be listening, those people who are suspicious or who've been told that there's no evidence that supports King David, King Solomon, and the early Israelite nation that. No, the Israelites didn't come about until after the, 
you know, till right before the Babylonian conquest, and they became a people group there, and they wrote this story about themselves to mm-hmm. kind of give themselves a national identity. There's no, pr- so no the, proof they were slaves in ancient Egypt or the Exodus or they went to the yes, Canaan or any that of that. That whole story. That's that whole story. So this this is some of the evidence that they found. And now this isn't about the Exodus. This is after. So this is about four to five hundred years later, after the Exodus, after the conquest, and it's about whether the whether there was a real king. David, whether there was a, a King Solomon. Right. So one evidence is the fortified cities. The Bible says Solomon built everything he desired, including the cities of Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. And so the evidence, what's the evidence? By 1960, archaeologist Hegel Yaden had identified six chambered gates. Okay, so a very elaborate gate system in three sites. Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer, which proved that they were built, one, by somebody very wealthy who used a standardized plan, which meant, again, a kind of a unified government. So you need unified mm-hmm. government, you need power and money, and a standardized plan. So mm-hmm. so the evidence is that that fits exactly as the Bible describes it, that they were built by Solomon. Here's uh, uh, the Bible describes a Judean border town named Sharaim, or City of Two Gates, near the Elah Valley, where David battled Goliath. And the evidence is that Yosef Garfinkel, an archaeologist, excavated ruins there and found olive pits and pottery dating to David's time. He found two gates and announced that he had found the city of Sharaim. Then there's uh, the House of David, Most Judean kings traced their lineage to David. Jewish prophets said the Messiah would be a descendant of David. What's the evidence? A stella appearing to be inscribed with the words House of David was found at Tel Dan in 1993. I've heard of that. Yes. And the city of David. How about the city of David? When David became king, the Bible says he commissioned a palace in Jerusalem at the site of the Fortress of Zion. In 2005, Elat Mazar uncovered a monumental building in Jerusalem and identified it as David's palace, based on its location and pottery. Hmm. And then ancient copper mines, Solomon's temple was described in the Bible, uh, was filled with bronze objects that would have required extensive mines. Thomas Levy, archaeologist, is excavating a large copper production site dating to the 10th and 9th centuries BC, which implies a complex, centralized society existing in Solomon's times. Hmm. So that's uh, just some of the archaeological evidence outlined by National Geographic. In the Creation Research Institute letter, there was some additional archaeological findings that I thought were worth mentioning. And so kind of in chronological order, this is the Mernetef steel, which contains the earliest reference to Israel in extra-biblical sources. And it describes Israel, it says, Israel is wasted, barren of seed, inscribed on a granite slab shortly before 1200 BC. So now we're going back even further. 
demonstrating mm. that as of 1230 BC, Israel was already in the land of promise as a significant socio-economic entity meriting the attention of the mighty pharaoh Menhepta. Hmm. So that's that one. Then the Tel Dan steel, which we already mentioned because National Geographic mentioned it, referring to the House of David. Then there's also the Moabite stone, which dates to 840 BC and memorializes the victories of King Mesha of Moab, including his subjugation of Omri, king of Israel, demonstrating that they are not the stuff of myth. So neither Moab nor Omri are mythological. Now, to put these discoveries in some kind of a time context, these dates you're talking about here are even before the rise of classical Greece, yes, Greece's right. civilization. So this is pretty far back in history we're talking about. That's right. Yeah, um, Greek civilization, if my memory serves me right, was began around 800 B.C. Right. So, and then you get the philosophers like Plato and Aristotle in the 300s, I believe. And they theorize that the Trojan War took place at about 1200, 12, around 1200 B.C. Which was once thought to be mythological also. Right. Uh, until they found the city. Right. Yeah. But this is long before, like, the classical Greece that yes, we know. exactly. So we're talking about pretty early in history here. Mm-hmm. Then as you move forward, you get the city of Nineveh. The chief city of Assyria was unearthed in 1845 by Henry Langard, along with such artifacts as Shenekerib's prism, Shalmaneser's black obelisk, and the ruins of Sargon's palace, which brought, provide weighty testimony to the reliability of the biblical record, because all of those persons prior to these discoveries had only been mentioned in the Bible. Mm -hmm. So critics, of course, said they were mythological. And, of course, at one time they said the Hittites were mythological, too, because the right. only reference we had to them was in the Bible until they started finding all kinds of... They have tons of archaeological evidence right. now. And now them. they know it was one of the uh, major dominant forces in world history. Right. Yeah. So then moving even closer, we get the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we've talked about and done a couple of shows on, found in 1947. They predate the earliest existing... Hebrew biblical text, the Masoretic text, by a full 1,000 years, and demonstrate conclusively that the Old Testament scriptures have been miraculously preserved by God over time. Then the Pilate Stone demonstrates that Pontius Pilate was the Roman authority in Judea at the time that Christ was crucified. Critics prior to this had said that he wasn't. Mm -hmm. The Pool of Siloam, where Jesus healed a blind man, in John 9, 7, was unearthed in June of 2004. So some of these very recent discoveries. And then finally they list the ossuary and bones of the high priest Caiaphas, who presided over the religious trials of Jesus in Matthew chapter 26. Those were discovered two miles south of the Temple Mount in 1990. Amazing. Yep, so we have a tremendous amount of good archeological uh, evidence as well as good, strong philosophical arguments for the truth of the Bible and the truth of Christianity. It sounds like there's more than enough evidence to take the Bible for what it says. Like if this, if we were talking about a non-religious document, 
such as Caesar's Gallic Wars or something like that, they find this kind of evidence that supports that, they would just say, well, this writing is obviously accurate because we have all this stuff that backs it up. Right. And yet they have all these things that back up the Old and New Testaments, but they're still skeptical as to whether it's accurate or not. Could it be because of the the things that the Bible says about sin and about obedience to God? Could it be because of bias? Yes, it could be. <laughs> it could be. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are talking about the evidence for Christianity. We're going over just a few items that I've picked up along the way. I was at a conference last week, the Evangelical Philosophical Society meeting, and got a chance to go in on a lot of lectures from philosophers, archaeologists, and theologians about the evidences for Christianity. So hmm. um, so I've got some of that mentioned, but I want to finish up with another item that came from the Christian Research Institute. Uh, they mentioned the Epic of Gilgamesh. You ever heard of that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is the ancient story about Noah's flood. Mm-hmm. And as soon as it was unearthed, critics immediately said, oh, look and see, this is where the Bible got its story that it copied from the, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Right. So I think you cover this in your book, don't you? I think I refer to it in there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. they have a good long article, but I just thought there's a couple paragraphs that I thought were uh, worth mentioning here. One of the big differences is that in Genesis, the ark was not only large enough to fit the need, more than a million and a half cubic feet, but according to modern engineering standards, ideally suited for floating and stability and could withstand waves in excess of 100 feet. In comparison... Wow. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's any modern ship that could uh, it's, withstand waves of that height, is there? I don't know that, but I do know that they have done engineering studies, uh, nautical engineering studies on... Uh, mock-ups of the Ark, and mm-hmm. uh, and that's where the, he's getting this data they from. They found that it has incredible stability. Right. It's not going to tip over. It's not going to break in half when a wave hits it. Right. Um, it's designed to float. Yes. It's an excellent design. Under extreme design. conditions. The dimensions given are, are an excellent design for, for floating right. and for carrying large cargo. In Gilgamesh, the case is precisely opposite. Not only is the ship... Insufficient in size, but its cubed shape would render the ship unstable and likely to capsize and spin in the water. Mm -hmm. So the existence of corrupted flood accounts, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh, and actually hundreds of others that have subsequently been discovered, underscore the existence of a real McCoy, you know, the real item. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's obviously some kind of racial memory of something that really happened going on here that a bunch of different people in different places wrote down. All over the world. Yes. That's right. Yeah, they all wrote in their history that about That in a itself flood. is somewhat evidence of the fact that something took place that they're all talking about. That's right. Yep. So the article goes on. It is written as history and corresponds to reality. This is talking about the biblical uh, version, no capricious gods clutter the text, and details that can be tested 
in an age of scientific enlightenment are wholly plausible. So mm. this is the version to be preferred, uh, mm -hmm. given that virtually every major civilization has some reference to a flood in its history. Mm -hmm. So again, uh, another good evidence. All right, so let's get into now some of the the things we were I was learning at the Evangelical Philosophical Society meeting. Where was that meeting? That was down in Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. So uh, it was a nice trip. You should come with me sometime. It's going to be next at uh, San Francisco, and I'm actually hoping to present there next year. So, so if you come, you that should you can, be interesting. Yeah, you can come to my class. And that's not exactly the Christian capital of the country, is it? No, it isn't. No, it isn't. So, but we'll be safely enclaved in some hotel somewhere. It's okay. About two thousand people go to this, mostly. <clears throat> Philosophers, theologians, uh, students of theology. Uh, a beautiful city, types. though, I understand. Oh, I've never, never been there, oh, but yeah. my wife has been there. She has relatives out there, and she says it's a wonderful city. Yeah, very, very pretty. Very hilly, Yeah, beautiful coastline, and uh, very foggy. Kind of wet and dreary a yes, lot Yes, I've heard that. Yeah. Okay, so this was a lecture from Angus... Menuge from Concordia University, and he talked about, uh, he put a really interesting twist on this argument from reason. Now, let's talk about the old argument from reason. We'll get a, we'll just briefly cover that, and then we'll look at what he is presenting as a evidence that naturalism, okay, the belief that there only nature exists, no, nothing that's not physical, is false. Okay. So, so this is not this argument is not an argument that God exists. This is an argument that atheism must be false. Okay, so it's a kind of a backwards way okay. of looking at it. So the argument from reason is that if evolution is true, and if naturalism is true, and again, let me just clarify that naturalism is the view that there is no God, no angels. No souls. There's nothing Nothing that's, supernatural. Correct. Nothing spiritual, basically. Right. Things are only uh, physics. They're, they're only matter and energy, period. There's, right. There's nothing outside of that. Right. And so the argument from reason goes that if that's true, if naturalism is true, and if evolution is true, meaning that your brain, who you are, we as human beings, came from an evolutionary process, mm -hmm. then you should not trust your own thinking. You should not trust your own reason, which means that you shouldn't trust naturalism, right? You shouldn't trust that your idea that naturalism is true is true, okay? Now, right. this has been really well explained by philosopher Alvin Plantinga. I was going to blank out on his name there for a second. And uh, so I have a sound clip of Alvin describing this. It takes about two minutes. So so this is Alvin Plantinga on the uh, argument from reason. Nowadays, people, often many people think there is a kind of science-religion conflict and that um, evolution really lies at the heart of the science-religion conflict. The truth of the matter, it seems to me, is that there isn't a science religion or a science, say, Christian theism conflict at all. Science began in the whole context of Christian theism and works well only in that context. And as a matter of fact, 
where there is a conflict is between science and naturalism. Not science and religion, but science and naturalism. If you're a naturalist, you will think, of course, that what I think depends on my neurology, on how the neurons in my brain are working, on what goes on in my brain. It also, de it's also, my behavior also depends on neurology. Now, given that we've survived, given the human race has survived, we can take it for granted that um, our behavior has been adaptive, and therefore that our neurology has been adaptive in that it uh, caused adaptive behavior. It also causes belief, but it doesn't matter whether the belief is true or false as far as adaptivity goes. So if you accept naturalism and evolution, you've got you know, what you might call a defeater for the thought that your cognitive faculties are reliable. You've got a reason to give it up, not to hold that belief. And if you've got a reason to give that belief up, then you have a reason to give up any belief you take to be produced by your cognitive faculties. But of course, that's all your beliefs, including then naturalism and evolution itself. So naturalism and evolution, that combination of beliefs, if you put them together, it shoots itself in the foot, you might say. It produces a defeater for itself. And that means you can't sensibly accept it. It's not a rational combination of beliefs. And that means then that naturalism and evolution, far from fitting together and supporting each other, cut directly against each other. Okay. So that mm. was Alvin Plantinga explaining the argument from reason. Wow. Pretty impressive. What do you think? Yeah. Well, it makes sense. It does. <laughs> he, he's really saying that if we're just a bunch of neurons that evolved from non-living chemicals, then we can't trust any of our thoughts including those about evolution or Darwinism or anything like that. You really cannot know anything Correct. for certain. For certain. That's right. right. That's right. So, so that has been kind of the basic view, the basic argument from reason. So what Angus Manoj uh, adds to this is a kind of an interesting twist, and he wants to argue that it's not that you can't just trust your reason, your reasoning, he says that you actually aren't reasoning at all. Hmm. So, so let me describe this uh, explanation to you. So again, let's, let's make sure we understand what naturalism is. Naturalism is, you know, no gods, no angels, no souls. There's, that means there's no mind in your head that's separate from your brain. You right. are the only, brain is just a physical organ that functions physically, and that's it. There's and nothing that's it. That's there. all that's going on there. Right. So, so when you think you're thinking that it, there's no you separate from your brain, right? The you is your brain, right? Right. That's that's all there is, right? So, no so, soul, no con individual consciousness, and just, no and no free will either. Right. You know, this is a. This is a. This is the crux for his argument, where this, how he proves his point. You would be a slave to your neurons. You, you are a slave to your neurons, according to naturalism. You right. are a slave to the chemical reactions going on in your head. All your thoughts come from them. All your wants, all your desires, all your actions come from the neurons firing in your brain by a series of a chain of event of cause and effect. Right. One cause causing another effect causing another effect, et cetera, all the way down the line. And you could actually, if you had careful enough instrumentation, you could actually trace that that causal chain all the way back. Right. 
So there is no free will in this view. There's no you creating a new cause that doesn't come from some other cause. Well, that's what a lot of people believe today. That's what they use as an excuse for their behavior because they say, well, I'm hardwired to be this way. I can't help it. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, they do. There is no right and wrong. There just is what my neurons tell me to do, and that's what I do. And that all comes from this view of naturalism. Okay, so now that we understand that that's a necessary requirement, no free will, what they call, (laughs) philosophers call libertarian free will, you know, that it's truly free, Mm -hmm. then we get to this argument. So think about a computer. A computer is not free, right? Right. Okay, so a computer does what it's told, Right. cause and effect. The software in it tells it what to to do. Right. Right, right. So, So it's not free, but it's also not reasoning, right? A computer can Mm -hmm. be very smart and can solve puzzles. Right figure things out, but the computer's not reasoning. No. Right? The person who programmed it is who's reasoning, right? Right. Okay. And if you put garbage in the computer, as the old saying goes, you'll get garbage out. Exactly right, which is why we don't trust some of these climate models, which are computer-based. Right. garbage in, garbage out. Right. So... Uh, so the computer's not active, right? It's not actively, for instance, taking responsibility for certain beliefs and decisions. It doesn't take responsibility for its output. Its output is a result of the person that programmed it. Right. Right? Now, in naturalism, right, there's no entity inside a person that owns responsibility for your beliefs. There's nothing there. Nobody owns or unifies your beliefs. There's nobody there. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you need to own, you need to unify beliefs in order to be rational, to to rationalize, to think. So let's give some examples. There's a law of inference in logic. Okay. The law of intru- inference. It's the fourth law of logic. And this very simply just states in kind of an algebraic form. If A equals B, okay, Mm -hmm. and we also know that B equals C, Mm -hmm. then we can reason, we can logically infer that A must also equal C. Right. Okay, now we only knew the first two facts. Right. We only knew A equals B, so that could be like a computer program. A Mm -hmm. equals B, B equals C, but there's nothing there there's no person there. There's no you there. In a computer, the computer has to be told that A also equals C. The computer would not be able to figure out on its own that A equals C well, because that wasn't fed into it. And even and even if it did, it's only, it's purely, it's not, it didn't do it by reason. Okay. okay. It's not doing, it's not doing it because it's uh, concluding. Right. Right. It's not concluding something. So, so let's take that computer example and then say that I'm monitoring your brain, okay? And I see that you have the thought A equals B mm-hmm. in your brain, okay? Mm-hmm. And then I also see that you have a second thought that B equals C, mm-hmm. okay? Now, I realize that A equals C, but you don't realize it. Okay. All right. So I feed through these wires that I'm monitoring your brain with. 
I feed that information A equals C. Now, did you reason that out? And you go, aha, A equals C. No, I got it from you. Exactly. Yes, you didn't reason it out. You got it from me. So even if the computer or even if you could figure out that A equals C, even by some kind of chemical process or, for, you know, that doesn't mean that you reasoned it, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, let's take a look at a paranoid man. Okay. Paranoid man is scared that he might die. All right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, is that rational? It might be because he will eventually. <laughs> right. He's, he's following reason, right? He's following, yeah, he might die. That's true. Um, there might be poison in this water bottle. Right. Okay. Okay. So, so it's, he's following reason, right? If I drink this poison, I will die. Okay. So he's following reason, but it's not rational. Okay. He's got a disturbed mind. So he's not reasoning clearly, right? He's not. He has no proof that there's poison in the water. He just thinks there is. Right. So he's acting That's a belief. irrationally, but he's still acting by cause and effect. Right. The way the naturalist says so that so in naturalism there's no distinction between a paranoid person and a rational person. You follow? Right. The paranoid person, he's acting by cause and effect. He's thinking with reason, right? Poison equals death, therefore don't drink the water. Right. Right? Okay, so but so reason, what we do as human beings when we are being rational is we deliberate, we have introspection, we use foresight, and it requires a self that has the power to select from different beliefs, like there is poison in the water or there is not poison in the water. We have to, there has to be a me there selecting or choosing. I have to have free will. Right. I was going to say, it sounds like you're talking about choice here. That's right. There's an individual that chooses, yes. I'm going to accept this or I'm going to accept that. That's right. Whereas a computer can't do that. It has to choose whatever it's told to choose. Right. Right. Exactly right. So, so in naturalism, since there's no soul, there's no real you, there's no free choice, Right. then there's no difference between a compulsive behavior and rational behavior. Okay. And there's, and we... So, so that sounds like an excuse used today for a lot of behaviors too. Right. It sounds like in a court of law you could use this, right? So, right. This so, isn't paranoid behavior. This is I'm just reasoning this out. I, yeah. My this uh, is what my I, chemicals in my brain tell me this. I'm hardwired this way. That's right. So so my kleptomania, that's just my. I was born that way to steal things. That, exactly right. <laughs> so if this sounds irrational to you it's because naturalism is irrational naturalism is false because it cannot explain human reasoning right so that is the argument from angus minouche from concordia university so so uh that was a nice little lecture then uh we've only got a couple minutes left looks like i had more archaeology stuff that i wanted to get into but we will have to save that for two weeks, I've got a brief uh, lecture that was given by Garrett DeWeese, and this might interest you because I know you go into, in your book, some of the different types of beliefs that you can have about evolution and creation, Mm -hmm. okay? So there's something called theological evolution, Mm -hmm. right? Do you want to explain that? 
to people theological evolution. What's okay, that? that basically, if I understand you correctly, is someone that believes that evolution took place, but yes. that God uh, guided the process. Exactly right. Yeah, so that's kind of one of these compromised positions. Right. You know, we don't um, accept the, you know, Earth is 6,000 years old, young Earth, and, you know, uh, created kinds, that viewpoint. We accept the old Earth— but now what do we do with evolution? Well, there are views about a kind of a punctuated evolution where God created, entered into time and created life, and then uh, you get the Cambrian explosion, mm-hmm. uh, then you get uh, human beings suddenly appearing. That it's kind of, like putting a foot in both camps, right. the theological camp and the evolutionary camp. That's right. So that's one view. Okay. And then there's also this theological evolution, which they accept everything. They accept the whole uh, ancient earth and uh, descent from a common ancestor. Right. But yet somehow, like, the mutations that happened weren't truly random, that they were kind of guided by— That God decided what was going to mutate into what and when. That's right. So what Garrett said about this is that this view is not a good view, that it doesn't fit both with science— and it doesn't fit with theology. Right. So first he points out that the gradualism, this kind of Darwinian gradual evolution, doesn't fit, it's not supported by the fossil record. Right. Okay. I, I deal with that in my book right. quite a bit. Yeah, so it doesn't deal with that at all. It, it doesn't proof, cover, The fossil record shows exactly the opposite, as a matter of fact. Right, very punctuated, especially if you look at the Cambrian explosion. Sudden... Um, influence of uh, new life forms that stay the same over Over long periods of time right and then secondly it just doesn't theologically fit with romans 5 where paul talks about a real adam and eve and how this relates to where salvation comes from how jesus is the second adam so theologic and so that that is the underpinnings theologically for the message of salvation. Yep. So so this view, theological evolution, really, I mean, people try and say, well, this is a compromise, but it just doesn't work. No. You've either got to go to that punctuated view, punctuated um, creation, or you've got to go to a young earth, really. It's those, those are the only two workable theories. Well, that music means that we're at the end of the show, and... I hope everyone will join us next week. We'll be debating two atheists. This has been the Evidence for Faith show. Always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. 